Dublab. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Greetings. This is Paul Holdengraber, the founder and director of Onassis, LA, and your host on the Quarantine Tapes. One year ago, in March 2020, Ola, Onassis LA, a center for dialogue, celebrated Dublab, the wonderful independent radio station in Los Angeles. At the Ola House, I spoke with Henry Rollins that evening of March 7th, 2020, just one week before the lockdown in Los Angeles. This is what Henry Rollins had to say. When you lose art and culture in a society, you lose the society itself. And when a society becomes more coarse, when museums and galleries close, when there's less opportunity to hear any kind of music, less opportunity to dance, to paint, to express yourself, what fills that vacuum is ignorance, bigotry, and brutality. Henry Rollins set the tone for what was to become the quarantine tapes. Deliberately refusing to succumb to that vacuum, Onassis L.A. and Dublab co-created the quarantine tapes, a daily program which we launched two weeks after that conversation. The Quarantine Tapes is a daily radio program in these times of grief, of devastating loss, and also of possibility, as well as a portal, perhaps, to what we do not yet know. Today, to commemorate this past year, we present you with part two of the Symphony of Voices. Be sure to also listen to part one. We will start with Derek Del Gaudio, followed by Lena Herzog, Rachel Kushner, Jory Graham, Julie Meretu, Christopher Knight, William Kentridge, David Reeve, Edgar Keret, Calvin Trillin, Andy Borowitz, Abraham Verghese, George Prochnik, and we will end our celebration today with Jerry Saltz. We hope that you enjoy our act of resistance and resilience as you listen back with us to some of the voices featured over this past year in part two of the Symphony of Voices on the Quarantine Tapes. Humor is basically indefensible. Uh, if the if the woman in the third row doesn't think it's funny, and uh, reminding her that uh, people in the show before this thought it was quite uh, hysterical, um, doesn't do any good at all. She didn't think it was funny. And um, telling a joke, uh, if someone reviews uh, a book of mine, I'm less disturbed if it's a bad review than I am if it's a good review, which mangles some of my lines that were meant to be funny, because that way, and and uh, I think, why would anybody read that book? <laughs> 
when when this author thinks of that as a joke. So, okay, uh, but I I think that if you have that sort of view of things, as say Andy Horowitz does, there there isn't any other way to to look at things. Uh, like us, uh, is is it hard to be to, to be funny all the time? And the answer is it's hard to expect you to be serious. You know, John Berger uh, has one of his last monologues in, uh, he had in, before he died. Uh, he called the world pri- as a prison with no outside and, uh, and said that um, ignore the jailer's talk. Words they speak no longer are useful for thought. And um, I find that to be, again, a, a, a point where you, from which you can depart and reconsider things and, and see things clearly, because actually I think a lot of them are staring in the face. And the pandemic, they tend to reveal the truth. It's just that I think the truth is so enormous that, that, that we, can't, we can't handle them. I think it's the, the kind of, uh, we run out of words, we run out of ways to say, but um, what is in between the reality and us are our, our old notions, our worn out words and worn out images. Um, in a strange way, so many of the things that you're going through in America have been the bread and butter in South Africa mm. for so many decades and there have been so much under questions of consideration. So, for example, it seems that America and Europe is catching up five years later to South Africa in terms of what to do with colonial and racist monuments and monuments to people who are involved with slavery and those questions. Those are all questions that were at the forefront of student uprisings in South Africa four or five years ago. Mm. Um, there's also a sense of, oh my God, again, does the world have to pay obeisance to America, the great God America, even in setting its political agenda. So there's a kind of resentment to America assuming that they are somehow both the leaders of the moral good and of the moral evil, but whichever way you look at it, they're still the big dog in town. So there's some resentment against that. So been, there's been some... Um, there's been some solidarity protests outside the American embassy, but of a very small nature um, compared to what happened in Europe. I mean, places like Belgium are just waking up to their colonial past now, whereas the question of colonialism and how it impacts and its long-term questions are very much within the general discourse uh, of South Africa. It was a little bit the same after 9-11 when suddenly America woke up to um, to discovering, oh, we are not all invulnerable. We are also vulnerable people. To say, well, welcome, join the rest of the world. I think that there is, um, look, if, 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 if our political system was a casino, it would have been shut down a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, you know, there are far more regulations to make sure that casinos are, are on the up and up than, than our uh, democratic, you know, system, which is terrifying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a real problem because there's, there's certainly not enough transparency, but also it's clear that it's clear that it's happening. I mean, as someone who's, who studied these things and how to, um, manipulate systems and processes my entire life, it's so, it's, it's so obvious and clear that it's 
happening. Um, and, and, you know, not just because I work on these. I mean, anyone who looks at, you know, redlining and, and how voter suppression works, it's it, they're doing it openly, um, which is what is really the terrifying part. Because if you can convince people that cheating is okay, that it is the game, then then we're in trouble. Mm. It's sort of like it's sort of like three card money, you know, like three card money people say is a game. You know, the other people call it a game where you toss the cards on the, you know, three cards and sure. one's different. Um, uh, people call it a game, but sort of like the, you know, the table in the house that I worked at, it's not a game. There's no, there, there's no game involved. It is, it is the simulation of a game that allows you to think that you have a chance of winning, but there's, there's absolutely no chance of you winning. And then not just maybe you might win and they're better at it and they might do some side of hand to to help you win or to, to make sure you don't win. It's like you cannot win because they've designed it so that it's impossible. It's, it just well, it just looks like a game, but it's not a game. And our political system is the same. And the problem I see is that one side uh, understands that uh, Republicans understand that it is absolutely not a game uh, and the Democrats don't. The Democrats still play by the rules that are put in place uh, that are actually there to ensure that it's not a game, to ensure that it's, it's rigged. Um, I always said it when it comes to those of us in the small joke trade that uh, something that's terrible for the country, uh, well, we often look on it the way dentists look on t tooth decay. Pity, but where would business be without it? So, in a way, we're all, always better off with an administration that's easy to make fun of. Well, there are limits to that, though. And um, found uh, uh, years ago, I was making a speech during the, the question and answer period. Someone said, suppose the, uh, the Trump administration is very good for, for your poetry. And I said, um, uh, I think I would believe, I believe I would think it's funnier if I were Canadian. I mean, that is, it's sort of funny, but on the other hand, look what's happening. Um, so in, in some ways, it's easier. And Biden's no great rhyme, I have to say. He's got his nice qualities, but he's no great rhyme. Um, uh, Harris, maybe a little better. So, um, but I'm looking forward to this. Um, and I, I would be willing to give up a few poems for some changes in the government. Great. So I, I actually read my shortest story ever. <laughs> so it doesn't get any shorter than that. And the, it's called Asthmatic. And basically, I'm asthmatic. And with the coronavirus, I must say that, you know, that it kind of brought me back to my childhood and this kind of fear, fear of not breathing. And it also reminded me of the story that I wrote many years ago. And it goes like this. When you have an asthma attack, you can't breathe. When you can't breathe, you can hardly talk. To make a sentence, all you get is the air in your lungs, which isn't much. Three to six words, if that. You learn the value of words. You rummage through the jumble in your head, choose the crucial one, and those cost you too. Let healthy people toss out whatever comes to mind the way you throw out the garbage. When an asthmatic says, I love you, and when an asthmatic says, I love you madly, there's a difference. The difference of a word. And the word is a lot. It could be stop, 
or inhaler. It could even be ambulance. Three generations or four from now, those people are unimaginable to us. We can't bring them to mind as real people, so we will not make sacrifices on their behalf. We will not change our way of living on behalf of people. We might on behalf of our children. That's always the plea. Will you do it for your children and your grandchildren? But will you do it for future humans who you do not yet know exist, which somehow was a state of mind, which was seven generations was automatic. The people much wiser than us who inhabited these lands before we committed genocide upon them. You know, they were able to think about time and why were they able to think about the future as a deep future in that way that was so intimate that they were able to make decisions about everyday things in communication almost directly with people whom they could imagine that we cannot, but partly because the imagination of the future mirrors our capacity to imagine the past. And um, they were capable of keeping ancestors in mind. Um, and as long as you can keep layers of ancestors awake behind you through rituals, through storytelling, through the inheritance of ways of believing, um, experience, uh, memory. Um, you know, I've always felt that it was a mirror. However many generations behind you, you can keep in your present generation um, by the many means that humans have devised to do so, uh, which is what most of art and civilization is really about, keeping ancestors, um, ancestral stories, ancestral belief systems, the past awake that is mirrored by how much of the future we can keep away. And we've managed to collapse both sides of that into a kind of place where we um, cannot imagine um, very far in either direction. I suddenly realized, you know, this is what the corpse and buggy doctor of a couple of hundred years ago did so well. You know, they could not cure what they could heal by their presence, by mm. their willingness to come to the home. You know, they could they could cure the soul, if you like, even when they could not cure the disease. And I, I try to convey this a lot to my students um, ever since I had that insight that, you know, I use an analogy of if you go to your home after the end of the day and find that your lock has been broken, your door is open, all your valuables are gone, you will be bereft, uh, not just because you're lost physically valuable stuff but because someone violated your space and then if the police come by an hour later and say we found the person who did this here is all your stuff back you will be cured but you will not be healed your sense of violation will linger and I think that you know a valuable lesson of this epidemic has been that you know the science alone and the restoration of the physical is not quite enough there's a huge moral spiritual violation that's happening to all of us from being confined from our, to our houses, uh, not being allowed to meet our loved ones, watching them die by themselves, you know. It's, um, it's, the, it's the second part of this illness, the great isolation that it engenders. Well, it's always a question of what you do with old, old monuments. It's obviously, it's one of the things where there are, there's no good solution, there's no good solution, there are different uh, bad and less bad solutions, but there are a lot of imaginative solutions that are possible. So it doesn't work to pretend that those figures in history didn't exist or that they didn't leave their particular legacies behind them, but it also doesn't work to leave them still on their pedestals as if they're 
historical position is unchanged. So you need something that both acknowledges the history, but shifts it. And I think there, there are different uh, possibilities. One is to take people off their pedestals, literally, remove the sculpture from the pedestals, put them down on the ground, even dig a, a kind of depression in the ground and you can go down to see them, should you so wish, and leave the pins open for new thoughts, new, new figures, new sculptural events. There was a very good solution in Belgium where they had King Leopold who presided over the death of so many millions of people in his private fiefdom of the Congo, where I think in Ostend, I think it was, in a seaside town in yes. Belgium, there was one of many statues of King Leopold on his plinth and at the base, a number of Africans with their grateful hands reaching up towards him in an attitude of thankfulness. And some clever person simply went along and cut off those hands. So you had suddenly had a monument of King Leopold presiding over a whole series of people with amputated arms, a reference to the amputation of hands of people who hadn't reached their rubber quotas in the uh, in the Congo colony at that time. So there are different ways of doing You know, you can have a whole graveyard of old monuments the way they have in Moscow, where all the portraits of Lenin, Engels, Stalin, and Marx are gathered together uh, in a rather astonishing garden of one of their museums, where you see every different style of sculpture and how you, you know, 20 different ways of carving a Kalashnikov rifle out of granite. 30 different ways of making a portrait of uh, Lenin or Stalin. So there are different solutions uh, to it. And I think the very fact of the plethora of solutions shows a, shows a kind of indeterminacy, a provisionality of all of our decisions about how to deal with the past. And the very fact that it's an unsolved problem is the one hope we have. I think the Confederate Monuments issue is a very special one, because if you, I mean, when compared, say, to cases where, like Churchill or like Gandhi, and as you probably know, and, and people don't know, people know about the controversy over Churchill statues, what they may not know is that there have been large moves in West Africa to remove statues of Gandhi and remove his name from public places because of his anti-black racism. So, I mean, those to me are hard cases. The, the Southern, the Confederate images are not for a wide variety of reasons. First of all, I mean, historically, what seems to have happened, I have written about this, is that, you know, the Union, the Federal Army won the war, but the Confederates, to a very large extent, won the post-war. Right. And if you, when these statues were erected, many of which weren't erected immediately after the war, went after all the South, some period until it was repealed by President Hayes for rather corrupt political reasons, nothing to do with really with ideology, you know, ended the Reconstruction. You know, the majority of these Confederate flags and monuments to Southern generals and officers of various kinds are built between about 1880 and the 1920s, which is the time of the, as it were, the toughening of the apartheid system, to use a modern word, in the American South. These things weren't built one minute after the war. They're part of an ideological effort to, to symbolically solidify white supremacy. And as far as I'm concerned, anyway, the idea that a defeated rebel army, even if the cause had been more, 
had been less palpably unjust. I mean, you can't think of a more unjust cause than fighting in the name of slavery. But even if it had been another cause, even if there had been a secession for other reasons, that, uh, that monuments to the secession would be all over the region of this, where the secessionists... I mean, you'd find that ludicrous in any other country. I, I, ex- I expect the artist to tell me. I expect art to mm-hmm. tell me uh, how it's changed and how we change. I think that as a critic, one of the things that I really attempt to do is to um, shut up and listen mm-hmm. with my eyes and my body. And I'm not into being a stage manager <laughs> or a, a stage director for uh, for artists. But they too. I mean, uh, also one of the things that that, that I, I had a conversation with uh, with an artist about who who pointed out that the overwhelming majority of artists don't make a living, don't don't make their living from their work. They have other jobs. But the peculiarity of this particular moment, when many of those jobs have been furloughed or removed. And those artists aren't working second jobs. Is that they're in their studios? Um, they're in their studios for for uh, periods of time and and attention that they haven't had a chance to uh, experience before. Um, so his observation was that, that inevitably, um, what artists are doing in their studios is going to change just because the dynamic has changed. Um, that concentrated periods of, of work uh, result in, in different outcomes. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see whether that happens or how that happens. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, art museums being embedded in the community in which they exist. Which sounds like I would be a fan of um, dispersing the collection to satellites all over Los Angeles. When in fact, what I mean is that the museum needs to be a reflection of the polyglot urban environment in which it exists. Mm. Any, any person in Los Angeles ought to be able to come to their museum and see themselves reflected in it and to be able to walk from one room to another room and encounter a completely different culture, one that is presumably totally alien to their own existence and to discover there something in themselves something with which they connect. And you can only do that if the collection is in one place. If, um, you know, if things are dispersed all over um, one of the biggest counties, urban counties in, you know, in, in America, then, that, uh, then that's lost. That experience is lost.
there was a kind of undifferentiated flow of time prior to that. And I think the reason that I used the date and not what happened and what's happened since is that suddenly we both went off of what I, I would call traditional calendar time and into something more like what I would call Kairos, mm. like uh, a non-calendar time, which I don't know, in continental philosophy is thought of as the time of the event where time is suddenly structured, not by, oh, it's Friday and on Friday I do X, but the historical conditions have been shaped and made and irrevocably altered by something that has taken place that will fracture the calendar time. And it seems that that happened on May 25th. And time was so irrevocably changed that after a week of, you know, being out in the streets and watching online in other cities, people being out in the streets and watching people vocalize, you know, decades and decades of frustration and heartbreak and pain, um, that it became kind of abstract that it had only taken place a week ago, the yes, death of this yes, person. Yes, yes, I agree completely. And that's why I decided that we were in this time of Kairos, even if that's a little, like, highfalutin to label it um, with a Greek concept, but, but it, it is, genuinely but it is, seemed but... like a different, we'd slipped into a different time. Well, uh, initially, as I'm sure many of of your listeners are aware, the, the, the first responders in New York had inadequate everything. I mean, they, they themselves didn't have protective gear. They themselves weren't being tested, so they were very concerned. Certainly my son was very concerned that he was working with people who were obviously ill. He himself was infected at one point with the virus, and they were no doubt entering scenes as supposedly as providers of, of of, of healing, of, of some kind of medical help, but they were themselves agents of infection. And the mix of seeing this incredible uh, swath of patients that he had often worked with the communities in the past since he works in a, in a very disadvantaged area of Brooklyn. It was the same people that he'd been, that he'd been seeing for a couple of years um, or, or the same community. And just and to see how absolutely they were, um, they were, I don't know what the right word is, they were in the front line of the disease. They suffered the most, their death so much higher than other parts of society. And he couldn't reconcile the ways that his own experience each night during that terrible time would be of death after death after death. And he would return to the world of his friends, kids he grew up with um, in, in Brooklyn, in, in Manhattan, and not one of their relatives would even have gotten ill. And the strange dichotomy uh, between a world that had remained, if frightened, so largely unscathed, at least at that time, and a population who just seemed to be falling right and left was something that troubled him profoundly. And one of the things that he said to me in, in one of our early calls that really provoked me to, to start writing the piece was he said, I'll tell you one thing that witnessing mass death in this way makes me think is what is the value of the beautiful poem? And beautiful poem sort of in quotation marks. What is the purpose of art in the face of so much suffering? I had a moment wandering around the streets here the other day. It, it's, it's so still where we are in, in London. Um, the idea 
that, that we're on a, a corridor of air traffic, and the idea that that could have fallen silent and essentially silent. I hear a plane right now, so it doesn't quite work, but essentially silent. Um, a year ago, would have seemed so inconceivable. That's to say that things are definitely, um, I, I, without prophesizing which way they'll go, I think that there is unquestionably an opportunity. I think it's absolutely impossible to say from where we are now whether we're really going to take it. I mean, Zach working in the summer um, during the protests, that really did um, have an element of, of, of hope about them felt that there was no question but that the virus had intensified the nature of rising against so much um, brutality and injustice, the Black Lives Matter protests. I, I, I think in this context about a remark by the um, humanist scholar Gershon Scholem, who was the, the, the person who really Kabbalah into um, academic studies outside of strictly religious circles. And he talked about this idea of historystic hours. He, he said that these, these, these moments can go many different directions. Often they go the wrong way, but they're moments in which when you move, something happens. And I feel very much that we are in one of history's plastic hours right now. And there's an extraordinary capacity for our actions to reverberate across communities, across political discourse, across human experience, and, and with regard to what art is, all of those questions as well. So how, how these moments will resolve what we can do as individuals in them, um, it's, it's a fool's game to try and predict. But I, I don't doubt that uh, I don't doubt that there that it could be a portal or it could be a horrific return to something much more brutal and elemental. Well, I think that I think there's a movement. You know, as you said, we all feel the urgency in a way, and I think in a sense that urgency heightens an, an existing urgency from before. COVID crisis in a way and um, when it's laying bare so much of the inequities and, and problems and kind of complicated difficulties of our reality and, and in a sense it's really laying that bare but in the midst of that and in order to negotiate that this crisis is somehow insisting on a certain on a certain kind of like um a stillness in time and almost like a slowing, slowing down of time but, but even though time doesn't feel that slow it, it, also, it also feels like it's moving very rapidly but at the same time within that there's this there's this there's this slowness and movement and this inability to go to really move and, and spatially and I think that that changes how one navigates space and time and so that that's the stillness I'm thinking about and and in that, even though, it's, and I know in the, in the big picture of things, it's a short amount of time. But for, if you're usually, usually moving a lot and traveling a lot, and as I usually do, and kind of moving through the world and, and engaging with people a lot, and kind of that, then it's, it's a really different experience. And I feel like the time where I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm with my family, and they're the ones that I see on a daily basis, and, and it's just us in the countryside. and the time has kind of paused in a way. Or every every other aspect of the way that I engage with time has paused. 
Well, I guess it's like so many pheromones of pleasure, of freedom, of longing, of another place like you found some place that you go to, like I would say the structure of the Iliad or a poem or anything that you find a kind of metaphysical architecture and then you kind of like as an animal architect kind of fashion a nest in it. And so for me, I'm just kind of happy when I'm lost in them. And I do lose contact with the world and at the same time get much more powerful contact with the world, which is one of my lessons of quarantine so far that I've never felt so profoundly connected to the whole world. Even though I can't appreciate other people's experiences of that world, I'm just sensing the bigness of it all, the beautiful complexity of it, the cruelty, the lack of redemption, whatever you want to call it. It just feels capacious for me in in my catastrophic state of working with cancer, of being in an industry that really may not survive, of being a person who's an art critic, who, when I started, there must have been 25,000 people like me, and now there are probably about eight, you know? And I want to help kind of fashion a set of tools for, you know, myself to go forward that might be able to be used by others or if it's not used I at least lived my life in art like you to support this show and Dublab's progressive programming Go to dublab.com slash support.